Let's pray together. Jesus, rock of ages, we come to you, gift of God. We desire to deeply draw from your well. Nourish us today, feed us, and send us to be your body, your flesh and bones in this world. We thank you for your presence among us today. Amen. The noonday sun is drawing out beads of sweat on the foreheads of a group of travelers. A rabbi and his students, strangely, both men and women. But even more strange, their choice to pass through the home turf of the Samaritans. What in the world was a group of Jewish people, especially a rabbi, walking through Samaria? They reach Jacob's well, and the students go off to buy food. Their teacher takes a load off. He's tired and thirsty. Maybe he's wondering about the wisdom of leading his disciples into hostile Samaria. In any case, opting out of the walk into town for food, he plops himself on the donut-shaped stone cover of the well, and he waits. Now, how long did Jesus sit there waiting for someone to show up with a bucket? We don't really have any indication of the timing of the woman's arrival. Was it 12.15, 12.30? How long did he sit there thirsty in the heat, in the middle of the day, not knowing who might show up, not knowing if another traveler would come by, whether they would be friendly or not? Or if a local Samaritan would show up. Well, he seems to be open to any of these possibilities. It's hard to overstate the shock that this woman would have felt when Jesus asks her for a drink. The idea of a Jewish man willingly making himself unclean by putting his lips on a Samaritan's water pouch would have completely floored her, let alone the fact that he was addressing her at all as a woman. So then, when they proceed to get into this deep spiritual conversation, she must have at one point wondered, like, is this actually happening? Is this my life right now? And we can't help but wonder what it was like for Jesus in his humanity Did he actually get so into this whole exchange that he forgot he was thirsty? I mean, it is still noon, and he is still human, and he did still finish a long walk. I wonder how much he was actually drawn into this conversation himself. This woman is obviously smart and spiritually and religiously sensitive. She's also utterly pragmatic, and eager to engage theological questions all at the same time. 
The Samaritans, as a people, were not actually looking for a Messiah in the same way that the Jewish people were at the time. Not necessarily anticipating a savior. And yet, she seems to be personally expectant and hopeful about God's self-revelation, about God coming to the people in this form. Maybe her obvious faith was part of Jesus' choice to speak to her his first clear declaration in John's gospel of who he is. It's obscured by our English translations, but Jesus says to her, I am. Now Jesus says, I am, and in provocative ways in other parts of John, but this is the first time he does it. To this foreign woman, this woman who is an outcast, in this scandalous conversation with this person his people would have rejected as a half-breed heathen, Jesus stands at Jacob's well with no bucket and opens himself in a way that he had not yet risked in his ministry so far. So not only is he physically vulnerable, having no bucket, but he opens himself, declaring something that could have, would have sounded blasphemous. How in the world is he able and willing to do this? except that he had food that his friends knew nothing about? How in the world could he have moved towards so much discomfort and vulnerability, except that he was drawing from the deep well of divine life and grace, divine spirit and truth? Some of us, myself included, might feel more often than we want to admit, like we have no bucket, and the well is deep. I have felt this way every time God calls me into the unknown. I have no bucket. The well is deep. And I certainly feel my great need and even incompetence when it comes to race and undoing racism. I remember feeling good about my seminary hosting a gathering of local African-American leaders for a couple days. This was probably, I don't know, maybe 2008. And at the end of their meetings, this group graciously invited whoever was interested on campus to a time of listening and some structured opportunity to ask some questions. And I remember, with some embarrassment, my my 28 or 29-year-old self earnestly asking a table full of black leaders what we should or could do as white people to be better allies. And in fact, I don't even know if I knew the word allies at that point. I remember an incredibly patient response from Regina Shan Stolzfus, who in a very gracious way told me, I needed to take responsibility for doing my own learning. That white folk, rather than rely on people of color to teach them, needed to do our own work and make an effort to educate ourselves. I'm sure I left that meeting without much understanding of what she meant or any plan for how I would take steps to go about learning 
but a peer of mine who had seen this interaction, who had been present at the same meeting, somebody I barely knew at that point, another white woman, invited me to a white women's caucus group that she was starting to take seriously Regina's counsel to do our own work together. Thanks to this friend and her follow-up, for the very first time, I took a careful look at my experience of whiteness with other women who had traveled a little bit further down this road than I had. I had never spent any focused time on this. And being asked to reflect, what it mean, to reflect on what it means to be identified as white helped me to see how invisible this had been to me. Because it's designed to be invisible. For at least 500 years, whiteness has been the standard against which everything else is measured. It's been talked about as the pinnacle of human beauty and intelligence, and yet it's also quite difficult to define. This too was intentional because it was intended to be what's normal. One way that I've seen that this has harmed us and that people of color have have reflected to me that it's harmed us as white folks has been that it creates kind of an unrealistic perfectionism and even a sense that we should already know how to handle and manage things. This is dehumanizing for us because it makes us predisposed not to honor human limitations and be okay with them, just as one example. Of course, whiteness also gives us many advantages in our culture. For example, white individuals are praised or critiqued on their own merits or failings and not held responsible for the reputation of all white people. But what continues to grieve me most, and I didn't delve into this back then, but as I've continued to learn, what grieves me truly is the church's history in this. That whiteness was woven into and deeply identified with Christianity in the colonizing of the Americas. Transforming Jesus' own body into a Western European who could then bless and excuse the violence that was deemed necessary for the new inhabitants of this land to become prosperous. I have needed for my own spiritual health to return to the truth that Jesus was in his body part of a suspect ethnic minority dominated by the powers of his day. And in the face of this, in the face of his own suffering as a Jewish person, in the face of his people's suffering, he drew from a well springing from the heart of reality itself, a well springing from the heart of divine life. A well that was so deep, he was able to enter into this land of Samaria and sit with no bucket, waiting for whoever might come. Jesus and the woman who came to the well spoke to each other 
in spite of a 500-year hostility between their people. Not to mention the specific and strict boundaries between women and men. Jesus recognized the idol that it was to claim a particular mountain on which one should worship. And he even, so he even relativizes his own community's um, claims about God. And in his life with God, he's clearly drawing deeply from the Spirit constantly. And in doing so, he's able to face the truth. To go on, to be able to even go on in the face of truth, we have to have the spirit of life. Spirit and truth. He told me everything I've ever done, the woman said. This could have been crushing. Somehow, in his offer of living water, though, somehow this this openness that he displays to her, this promise of a spring that can well up within us, she hears grace and hope, even though he's telling her everything she'd ever done. This woman who could barely have faced her neighbors receives Jesus with so much enthusiasm that she goes calling out to them, come and see. We don't even know her name, but she becomes the first woman to preach the good news about Jesus. And many believed, it says, insanely in their day, many believed because of the woman's testimony. A woman's testimony? That was absurd. The barriers that are overcome in this story were as profound as the barriers we face in our day. 500 years of hostility did not vanish instantly that day, and yet something was bubbling up toward boundless life. 500 years, that's just about exactly the U.S. American experience of racial division and dehumanization. And there is a well. In our story over the next two days, Jesus himself becomes the well, receiving hospitality from people who were sworn enemies, talking, eating, staying with them in their homes. He offers himself as openly as he had with this woman. With an openness he had not shown, for example, by the way, to the seasoned religious teacher Nicodemus who had come to him at night just one chapter before. As one writer puts it, the Messiah is the one in whose presence you know who you really are. The good and bad, the all of it, the hope in it. The Messiah is the one who shows you who you are by showing you who he is. Who crosses all boundaries, breaks all rules, drops all disguises, speaking to you like someone you have known all your life. The group of white women who I had met with years ago who met over the course of at least several months. We asked each other, as we thought we might be wrapping up, how it was that we would be accountable to women of color 
for what we were learning and discussing. In those conversations, as we met with a couple of women of color in our area who were friends of ours, to talk with them about what we had been discussing and learning, I slowly became convinced that my my approach, my person-to-person, local approach, was not actually touching the biggest problem of racism. Over and over, those white women who had, had a little more experience in thinking and learning about this kept talking about the bigger realities, the systemic realities, the structural racism. And I've known this vocabulary for years now, but what does it look like day to day and week to week? I have felt like I have no bucket. I don't know the how. I've taken what feel like tiny steps, continuing to read and listen, trying to pay attention to people of color's perspectives on what is happening in our country trying to connect with the NAACP, lately just trying to have the discipline to notice when I am in mostly or completely white spaces, social spaces or in public, places that might not feel safe or easy for people of color, as easy as they are for me. I have often felt like racism in this country runs so deep, and I have no bucket. I keep reaching for what is doable. What seems doable. But Jesus keeps pulling us and stepping beyond what is doable. According to usual human calculations, anyway. I wonder, for us, if it might be an important spiritual discipline to sit with our bucketlessness for a bit. We see what is wrong, but we don't know how to make it right. If we could just get to the how. But even that is is programmed into us, this belief that we can or should be the ones who fix things. And to be able to do something about it maintains our position of power and influence. And that's not to say we do nothing, but there's something about how we come to this that I think needs to shift. We see over and over in scripture, just like this woman, how it's people who have known a lot of pain, who have been kind of on the underside, who are most open to receive and run with, literally sometimes run with, the good news of Jesus. It doesn't mean that if we have privilege, we won't or can't receive what what Christ is doing. It likely means that our role is more often one of support, of following the lead of people of color, listening, and continuing to learn and struggle alongside. We're not going to get it right. Like, I think for me, I don't know about you, but it's it's actually a bit of a relief to say, I I don't know, I'm not going to get it right. Like, I'm going to let go of always thinking I have to get it right. No, but to pay attention to just what the next step might be. What am I being invited to? And to be ha- ask for the courage that we need to take that ne- next step. 
with some gentleness toward ourselves because we will need to be uncomfortable again and again as we go. And just like the rest of discipleship, it will take a lifetime. How was it that Jesus could ever walk his path? Cross through Samaria to begin with. Continue his ministry, which led people to call for his death. He was drawing from the deep well of God. Willing to go bucketless. Feeding from the spring of boundless life in the spirit. Christ has gone before us, breaking down walls of hostility. And through our baptism, we have already died with him. And by the generosity of God, we can walk in freedom in the life of the Spirit. Jesus offers himself. Will we come and drink and live?